My name is Shane Lewis, and you are listening to Forever on My Mind, Blues Songwriting in the 1960s, an independent study podcast from the College of Worcester. This past summer, I was waiting in line with my dad to see the blues guitarist Steady Rollin' Bob Margolin live at the Carolina Theater in Greensboro, North Carolina. Margolin is most known for playing guitar in Muddy Waters' touring and recording band in the 1970s. That evening, he was performing acoustic blues alone. For dinner, my dad and I had food at an Irish pub across the street, and we were eagerly waiting in line to see some live music, which we hadn't done in a while because of the pandemic. My dad and I have always loved seeing live music together, especially the blues, our favorite genre of music. While waiting in line, my dad did his thing he usually does and struck up a conversation with the strangers waiting in line in front of us. They were an older husband and wife and were also avid blues fans. Eventually, we all started talking about our favorite blues musicians. At one point, the husband walked away for a bit. When he was gone, the wife was telling us about the best live blues experience she had ever seen. She said it was just herself, her husband, and two of their friends in a small bar in Florida in the mid-1990s. She said he was a shorter man who sat down and played some of the most passionate blues she had ever heard, and that she was mesmerized by this guitarist's performance. When her husband came back, she asked him, What was the name of that guy we saw in Florida with Rich and all them? And the husband lights up and says, Oh yeah, it was some guy named John Lee Hooker. At that moment, my dad immediately turned and looked at me with the most wide-eyed expression ever. And I also had the same expression. I explained to the husband and wife that John Lee Hooker is not only one of my favorite guitarists and songwriters of all time, but I've dedicated several hours of listening to his discography and reading about him for my undergraduate studies. They were fascinated by my project, and were surprised to hear that a younger person like myself even listened to the blues. The show itself was amazing, and Bob Margolin put on a captivating performance. I even told him during the intermission that one of the songs that he recorded with Muddy Waters, The Blues Had a Baby and They Named It Rock and Roll, appeared in my junior IS. To which he responded, Oh wow. Yeah, that's a cool song, man. That's a cool song. From the conversation we had while we were in line, my dad and I now have the inside joke of describing John Lee Hooker, one of my musical idols, as quote, That one guy we saw in a bar in Florida. is my favorite genre of music of all time. Not only do I love the actual music and the sounds that have been created by the musicians within the genre, but I also love the stories that the songs tell. These stories have intense emotional ranges, from some of the most depressing stories I've ever heard to some of the most beautiful and joyful. In the end, the genre is based around stories and emotions from a human's own experience. 
even if another blues artist is covering another blues song, a lot of the times they change the lyrics slightly. That's because the genre is fluid and open to expression and change. Each blues musician has contributed something significant to the genre ever since it first started. In this project, I will examine the songwriting of the blues during the 1960s, when the genre was most popular. When the blues became very popular, in particular with white audiences, the songwriting in the genre shifted. Blues musicians who continued their careers in the 1960s were impacted by this popularity and in response shifted their songwriting. Their songs became less about their harsh lives in the Delta and more about their personal emotions and feelings. They wrote about death, grief, suffering, anger, hope, joy, love, and much more. No matter the emotion, they knew that the audiences would listen to what they had to say. I will build on previous interdisciplinary blues scholarship and infuse it with a songwriting approach to better link the historical lives of the musicians with their creative expression. For one thing, blues songwriting is often disregarded or hardly acknowledged when it comes to its historical interpretations. For instance, most scholars focus on musicians like B.B. King and Muddy Waters, who were mostly known as performers and less as songwriters. My songwriting approach highlights a part of blues academia that is often overlooked. Analyzing how the lyrics changed is essential to understanding the evolution of the genre. The tense and chaotic decade of the 1960s which blues musicians lived in directly impacted their songwriting, creativity, and emotional expression. The popularity of blues musicians such as Sunhouse, Howlin' Wolf, and John Lee Hooker gave them the perfect opportunity to share their experiences with the world. They were not afraid to share their stories and outcries to their audience, especially during an historic decade like the 1960s when black Americans ramped up their collective fight for equality. In the end, I argue that black blues musicians in the 1960s wrote song lyrics that shared new lived experiences such as restlessness, political protest, and emotional self-expression as a result of their growing popularity and the radical and rebellious tone of the 1960s. Before the first blues recordings, the genre originated from call-and-response labor songs that African-American slaves in the South would sing while undergoing harsh labor conditions. These songs, sometimes called field hollers, were typically a cappella and sung with a communal call-and-response style. The musical style of these chants originate from West African musical vocal ranges, and outside of the fields, these vocals were accompanied by banjos, fiddlers, and then eventually guitars. After the Civil War when slavery outside of imprisonment was legally abolished, black Americans kept aspects of the songs sung during slavery and evolved them into a new genre, the blues. The blues was therefore not the music of slavery, but instead, as blues musician Lamont Perley Sr. puts it, quote, the blues was the expression of freed African Americans. The genre evolved further in the 1920s with the first audio recordings. Although slavery was abolished, the sharecropping system was in full operation, and many black Americans still suffered under harsh labor conditions. To cope, many, mostly male, sharecroppers would sing songs at bars or clubs during any free moment they had to make more money on the side. At this time, the Great Migration was also taking place, where a large portion of black Americans were moving from the south up to northern cities. Although they were leaving the rough conditions of the south, 
Black Americans were segregated in the cities and often worked dangerous industrial jobs. Harsh factory conditions in cities like Detroit or Chicago inspired blues musicians to express their frustrations with city life. At the time, Jim Crow laws were in place in the country, which segregated black and white Americans in society and encouraged a kind of othering attitude towards black Americans. These laws also applied to how music was sold. Blue singles were categorized within a specific section of record stores called race records. This trend was started by OK Record Company in 1921, and the intention behind the record companies was to sell records made by black Americans to black American customers. White musicians that recorded a similar genre or sound from the same regions would have had their records sold under the Hillbilly Records category. Many other record companies used the same categorizing system that OK developed in the 1920s in their marketing. To many historians and scholars, the blues essentially begins with two musicians, Charlie Patton and Robert Johnson. Born around the 1890s in Mississippi, Charlie Patton's first recordings started to be sold in 1929. Patton was rumored to be part Cherokee, which influenced his musical style of almost drumming on his guitar while screeching out ethereal vocals. He was known for his gruff and aggressive vocals and percussive guitar playing, with songs like Down the Dirt Road Blues, Mississippi Bow Weevil Blues, or Oh Death giving glimpses into the harsh living conditions of the Mississippi Delta. According to Howlin' Wolf biographers James Seagrest and Mark Hoffman, quote, Patton was the best guitarist in the Delta, with a percussive drive and aggressive edge that no one could match. Raw talent and ambition made Patton the most popular bluesman of his time and place. Robert Johnson was born in 1911 in Mississippi and would have been a contemporary act of Patton's. There are currently only three confirmed photographs of Johnson, and at age 27, he simply disappeared without a trace, with the legend being that he was poisoned by someone who wanted revenge on him. Some even consider him the first member of the 27 Club, a list of young popular musicians who tragically died at the age of 27 over different time periods. Johnson's voice was high-pitched and piercing, and he would scream in his songs about his run-ins with the devil and Judgment Day with harrowing ballads such as Crossroad Blues, If I Had Possession Over Judgment Day, or Me and the Devil Blues. Sun House, one of Robert Johnson's good friends and contemporary blues acts, stated in 1942 that Johnson, quote, could play more blues than e'er one of us. Folks would say he couldn't, but we know, us musicians, that he was the man. What little I know, I taught him. But he put his own sound in it and sang with it, sang all night. And beyond just Patton and Johnson, there were many others during their time that grew the genre, such as Memphis Minnie, Blind Willie Johnson, and Mississippi John Hurt. Both Patton and Johnson set the stage for many famous blues musicians in the 1960s, and even non-blues musicians. Many older blues musicians encountered and were friends with Patton and Johnson, such as Sunhouse, Howlin' Wolf, Booker White, or Willie Brown. By the 1960s, Patton and Johnson were practically worshipped by British groups such as the Beatles or the Rolling Stones, and even covered some of their songs. Their mysterious lives added to the folklore and mysticism of the blues, such as Robert Johnson supposedly selling his soul to the devil at the crossroads, or the fact that only one confirmed photograph of Charlie Patton exists. Their short but influential lives and careers set the stage for an absolutely beautiful genre of music that continued to expand and evolve. After World War II, the race records category was changed to rhythm and blues in order to appeal to white audiences. As a result, 
there was a wave of record companies that were interested in selling blues records. Acts like Howlin' Wolf in Chicago or Lightning Hopkins in Texas were being picked up left and right for this new market that was emerging. In the late 1940s, there was a small boom of blues popularity, but by the 1950s, the market for blues listeners was taken from another emerging genre, rock and roll. Musicians like Chuck Berry or Little Richard took the roots of the blues and sped it up, giving a whole new rebellious energy that was popular with youth. In the 1960s, the blues blew up in popularity with white audiences. Black blues musicians, who were previously unknown to most white people, became nationally recognized rock stars by the end of the decade. The discographies of blues musicians like Charlie Patton or Robert Johnson, who had long passed by the 1960s, were heavily reissued. And for the ones still alive, they were sought after and tracked down to display their talent to the world. All of a sudden, theaters and managers were asking black male musicians in their 50s or older to play the genre which they had been playing for years to black audiences, now to young white audiences. Whether it was heavy electric blues that people danced to all night or expansive acoustic blues ballads, this new audience adored these acts. Some of these older blues musicians adjusted easily into the rock star world and embraced it, whereas others struggled to adapt to this sudden fame. As to how this new audience heard about blues acts in the 1960s, there were two main sources of knowledge. Television specials were extremely important in presenting these musicians to a new audience, especially audiences in Europe. These programs highlighted pop music of the day, and at this time, the blues was considered a pop genre. A program may run a special on the Beatles, four young white men from Liverpool, and then another featuring black blues musicians from the Delta who were well into their 50s. These blues musicians were looped into the same celebrity world as the young white rockers because of these television specials. Along with television specials, nearly every year of the decade was filled with music festivals completely centered around the blues. In the U.S., festivals like the Newport Folk Festival, Newport Jazz Festival, and Memphis Country Blues Festival were run by members of their respective communities. The American Folk Blues Festival took place in Europe and was started by blues musician Willie Dixon to expose white European audiences to the genre. And finally, in 1969, one of the biggest and most prominent musical festivals of all time, Woodstock, featured blues and blues-adjacent acts like Canned Heat, Mountain, Ten Years After, Johnny Winter, and Jimi Hendrix. Similar to the television specials, these festivals were quite often well-documented and recorded, and can be found today on various platforms such as Spotify or YouTube. With the end of the 1960s came the end of the blues as a popular genre. The folk craze coincided with this 1960s blues craze as well, and by the 1970s, blues and folk stopped being the pop music on the radio. Quickly, the blues shifted into disco, soul, funk, R&B, hard rock, and heavy metal. However, the genre's influence and importance was far from forgotten. The genre even had a small revival in the 1980s, with acts like Stevie Ray Vaughan or Albert Collins. And while the 1960s blues craze was happening, there were so many other cultural and historical events happening in the United States that impacted the entire world. A tense and protested war was being fought in Vietnam, the civil rights movement was in full swing, and young people around the world were speaking out on these issues and many more. And most relevant to blues musicians, black Americans, especially in the South, were incessantly demanding the abolishment of Jim Crow laws that were still pervading the country and to be treated equally in the eyes of the law. 
in this mass of political and cultural events, music was a defining factor in demonstration and shouting out what one believed in, and the blues was an essential piece of this rebellious puzzle. In terms of my evidence, I will be looking at black male blues musicians from the Mississippi Delta that were known primarily as songwriters in the 1960s. The reason for this distinction is because quite a few blues musicians, especially during the 1960s, were primarily guitarists or performers. Musicians like B.B. King, Muddy Waters, or Buddy Guy would fall under this category. This is not to say blues musicians like these did not contribute to the culture of their genre, but rather, this project will focus on the craft of songwriting and the ability to tell stories through this medium. I will also be discussing the performances that went along with these blues songwriters and how these contributed to their songwriting and emotional expression. The blues is also an absolutely massive genre with many subgenres and offshoots under it. Therefore, within this project, when I refer to the blues, I am specifically referring to the music made by black male guitar players from the Mississippi Delta who wrote or modified songs in the 1960s. Black female acts in the 1960s that would have been considered blues, such as Nina Simone, Etta James, and Ella Fitzgerald, were more in the jazz and R&B scenes and used the piano as a central instrument. This music scene also warranted shifts in songwriting in the 1960s for these female acts. Some exceptions in the male-dominated guitar blues scene in the 1960s, however, were Elizabeth Cotton, who played acoustic guitar, and sister Rosetta Tharp, who played electric. Location and lived experiences are extremely important within the genre distinctions of the blues. For example, Delta blues originated from the Mississippi Delta region and is defined by scratching acoustic guitars with a singular performer. Chicago blues is heavy and centered around electric guitars and full bands. And Texas blues is either acoustic or electric and has a rocking style that was made for dancing. These three are some of the main location subgenres, but really each city or region that has had blues musicians play there has a distinct style. For my argument, Delta and Chicago blues are the most important location subgenres that will be looked at. The three main musicians I will be looking at for this project are Sunhouse, Helen Wolf, and John Lee Hooker. I will be using biographies of each musician to contextualize their lives, along with analysis of their lyrics. There are several reasons as to why I wish to use these three in particular, and in the playlist for this episode, I have included a song for each of them which I feel accurately captures their songwriting. Firstly, all three of these musicians were contemporaries during the 1960s and all peaked in popularity during that time. This can be seen from the sheer amount of albums, live television performances, concerts, attendance to music festivals, and mentions of their names in musical journalism. Each of them peaked during their genre's golden years, but with slightly different audiences and circumstances. Each of these three musicians also performed various styles of the blues which have been previously mentioned, and were all born in the Delta. Sun House, a former preacher from Mississippi, 
unapologetically performed the Delta Blues his entire career, using mainly a steel guitar, a glass slide, and his intense vocals. Most of the time he would perform alone, but no matter what, he stuck to the raw acoustic sound from the Delta. His vocals were passionate and booming, and although he was often performing alone, his presence on stage and in recordings was mesmerizing. His lyrics dealt with death, religious struggle, and love. Although originally from the Delta, Howlin' Wolf's 1960s musical career started in the Chicago scene. His entire life he performed heavy, hard-hitting, and powerful electric blues. His sound was defined by loud, distorted guitars, pounding drums, piercing harmonica, his booming, scratchy voice, and most of all, his intense and expressive stage moves. To the audience, Wolf was a figure to be reckoned with on stage, and he always performed with a rotating backing band. Most often, he was joined by his bandmate and occasional co-songwriter, the famous blues bassist Willie Dixon. Dixon had a very different songwriting style compared to other blues musicians, and at times, Wolf and Dixon's songwriting relationship was extremely contentious. Although they hated each other, Wolf and Dixon managed to reflect the 1960s in their songwriting and performance. Johnny Hooker's musical sound was almost a middle ground between both of these styles. While he grew up in the Delta like the others, Hooker's life was defined by constant traveling across America. Because of this, his sound was constantly changing. One album he would sound almost like Bob Dylan, and the next he could be louder and heavier than Helen Wolfe. His sound was dynamic, and represented a kind of balance within his diverse songwriting style. Hooker could play completely alone or with a big band behind him, but either way, he would absolutely captivate his audience with his performances and songwriting. Johnny Hooker wrote a lot about his emotions and frustrations with the world. But other times, he would play music for dancing, for which he would later receive his nickname of the King of the Boogie. All three of these musicians started their musical careers at different times, but the 1960s was each of their peaks in popularity. Several live performances at packed festivals, specially curated television specials, and several consecutive studio albums in a single year were all very normal parts of their agendas as blues musicians. These musicians kept extremely busy and did not stop creating or performing music during this cultural boom in their genre. They all three recognized that in the 1960s, this was their time to express their emotions and share their stories to the world. They were completely aware of their popularity and their audience, and unapologetically showed the world who they really are. blues scholarship that exists explores a large range of topics within the genre. The scholarship I will be focusing on, however, is the kind that focuses on the 1960s and mentions my three musicians I will be using as evidence. The four primary scholars that concern my topics on the emotional expression and performance of the blues include Samuel Charters, Charles Keel, Bruce Cook, and Robert Palmer. These scholars in particular look at the blues from an historical perspective and at one point were all musicians or worked in the music industry. Their works are also very important for looking at the historical, social, and cultural evolution of the genre. As well, most of these scholars have had works inducted into the Blues Hall of Fame by the Blues Foundation in Memphis, Tennessee, 
under the category of Classics of Blues Literature. I will also be exploring some newer scholarship from 2021 that explores the songwriting of the blues, specifically in the context of the 1960s. Samuel Charters was essentially the first scholar to publish an academic work on the blues. This work was titled The Country Blues and was published in 1959, just before the genre's big jump in popularity. Charters argued that the blues was a genre of the rural South, and did not see the genre's evolution in other regions as true to the blues. In the middle of the blues craze in 1966, Charles Keel built off Charters with his work Urban Blues, in which he disagreed with Charters and argued that the blues is a genre of the city. As well, Keel wrote his work at the peak of the genre's popularity, and his perspective indicates the genre's shift in audience and style. Bruce Cook wrote The Land Where the Blues Began in 1973, where he diverts from Charters and Keel's framework of whether the blues is a rural or urban genre, and instead argues that the genre evolves depending on the time or the place. And in the 1980s, Robert Palmer, not the famous pop singer, argues in his work Deep Blues that the blues originated from the rural delta and that no matter where the genre has moved to, it still retains the identity and culture of the delta in some way. All four of these scholars provide unique perspectives on the blues and at different time periods, and highlight the performance and emotional expression within the genre. Beyond just the historical and journalistic approach that these scholars have provided, I will also be implementing some newer scholarship that specifically pertains to blues songwriting. The work is called Poetic Songverse, Blues-Based Popular Music and Poetry. Published in September of 2021, the authors are Mike Madison, a blues musician and songwriter known for his work with blues guitarists Derek Trucks and Susan Tedeschi, and Ernest Suarez, an English professor at Catholic University. In this book, they argue that a lot of 1960s songwriting combined beat poetry and blues songwriting techniques into a unique style of songwriting called poetic songverse. Musicians they deem fall into this category include Bob Dylan, Leonard Cohen, The Beatles, The Rolling Stones, and many more 1960s acts. However, they imply that blues songwriting simply stopped evolving in the 1960s and failed to contextualize the stylistic shifts that occurred as a result of the genre becoming immensely popular. A fascinating aspect is the tone of informality that occurs within this historiography. All of these writers have a very casual tone when discussing their topics, and in many ways this makes sense. Most of these writers worked in journalism at one point and know how to write for the public. Their casual tone presents a connection with their audience and how the writers present their material. As the genre they are writing about deals with close, emotional expression, this adds even more to the rawness and genuine feelings that come from the casual tone. In many cases, these authors are not afraid to outright slander each other with casual and informal punctuation and treat the historiography as an actual conversation. And although these journalists are writing for their present contemporary times, they still ground their writing and conclusions in historical thinking. This project being a podcast also adds to the informality of the blues historiography. Not only am I presenting it in a popular and informal format, but like the authors beforehand, I'm using storytelling and narrative as a method of presentation. In this sense, I'm continuing the tradition of the early works on the blues with the presentation of my argument in a podcast format. Along with this, I'm able to provide sonic elements for the listeners to engage with, and the various albums and videos that I'm using as evidence are much easier to access than in the previous decades.
Whether it was the scratchy sound of the countryside or the distorted sound of the city, all three of the musicians I will be looking at had common themes within their songwriting. To them, songwriting, along with performance, was a way to express and sometimes forget about negative emotions. Mourning the death of someone close, protesting the chaotic political landscape of the 1960s, and wanting to just move on from a past lover were all common themes amongst these musicians. Although a lot of their songwriting and performance expression was dedicated to these kinds of emotions, there was still some positivity to be found within their creative careers. Some of their songs did celebrate things in life like falling in love, dancing, or simply just being able to wake up in the morning. It is not coincidence that in almost any blues album, you will hear the lyric, it's alright. No matter how much negativity was expressed within their albums, there was always something positive to balance it out. Songwriting and performance were also very important to their lives, and their lived experiences impacted their songwriting. This is why I'll be looking at the lives of each musician along with their songwriting and emotional expression. Their songwriting was a product of the historical events and general culture of the 1960s. I'll provide some background on their songwriting before the 1960s, but I'll mainly be focusing on their peak in popularity. My use of biographies of the musicians as well represents how their lived experiences coincided with their songwriting and emotional expression. Blues songs are intensely personal even if the musician is covering someone else's blues song, so it is essential to look at the lives of the three musicians I will be using as my evidence. Also, as you've heard so far, each of the podcast episodes have sonic elements to them. All of the instrumental portions are performed by me and are performed in the style of the musician in order to fit the atmosphere of each episode. And finally, not a lot of the 1960s songs from the three musicians I will be looking at have been analyzed before in academia, at least from what I've found. This project will open up new analysis of 1960s songs and show how historically significant they really are to the history of the genre.